Hi, I'm your host Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. I'll shortly be joined by international legal scholar Dr. Ardi Imsies to speak about the illegality of Israel's indiscriminate bombing of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. On a personal note, though, I'd like to thank all of our listeners and viewers for watching and supporting the show. We really can't make the show without your support, and if you're able to make a small contribution, you can do so by going to our website, theanalysis.news, and hitting the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. You can also share the show and like and subscribe to the show wherever you watch it, be it on podcast streaming services such as Spotify or Apple or on YouTube. Thanks for watching and see you in a bit with Dr. Artie Amsies. I'm very happy to be joined by Dr. Ardi Imseis. He is an assistant professor of international law at Queen's University in Canada. He spent 12 years working for the UN in Gaza, as well as in East Jerusalem, working for UNRWA, which is the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, as well as for the UNHCR, the UN's High Commissioner for Refugees. He was also on a commission which was mandated to investigate the human rights violations and violations of humanitarian law taking place in Yemen. And he has recently published an amazing book called United Nations and the Question of Palestine, Rule by Law and the Structure of International Legal Subalternity. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Ramses. Thanks for having me, Talia. Thank you. So... We've been watching the news and seeing how Israel is perpetrating all sorts of atrocities in the occupied Palestinian territories. There was a recent CNN report which showed that over 50% of the bombs being dropped are actually what's called dumb bombs, so they're not precision guided. The UN has just said that 90% of Palestinians have been forcibly displaced and the death toll is at least 20,000. It's probably even more than that, of whom 9,000 are children. So what is your assessment right now of the extent of the war crimes that are being committed by Israel? Well, um, it's it, it, it take what I say with a grain of salt because it comes at some distance. I'm sitting in Ottawa, but based on the information available in the public realm coming through on an hourly basis uh, on the uh, Al Jazeera news network, who are the only ones who actually have a physical presence on the ground, the only major international journalist uh, organizations on the ground in the Gaza Strip, and any other coverage that is uh, being picked up, um, it is unbelievable and unprecedented, the amount of, of damage and destruction being wrought on, on, uh, on the people of Gaza. Um, the events of 7 October were clearly uh, very difficult for the Israeli side, and uh, to the extent that civilians were killed, and they certainly were, and by the hundreds, it's, it clearly gives rise for concern that these were violations of the laws of war, and they may very well include war crimes and other such, um, taking of hostages, for instance, is a war crime. Um, targeting of civilians is clearly a war crime, and so on. What is certainly true, in my respectful view, is that uh, based on the response by the occupying power in Gaza, the killing of 20,000 individuals, two-thirds of whom um, uh, are women and children, the vast majority of whom, upwards of 90 to 95% are civilian, um, thousands others uh, in the rubble and unaccounted for, presumably dead, over 50,000 casualties on the Palestinian side, again, the vast majority of whom civilians, 
the imposition of uh, starvation by the occupying power as a tool of warfare. That is the absolute cutting off of water, food, fuel, electricity, and so on, deliberately. Um, uh, the forcible transfer of the Palestinian population. Now about 85% of the population of the Gaza Strip has been forcibly transferred from their homes, um, crushed uh, southbound towards the Egyptian border. The real and substantial threat of uh, forcible transfer into Egypt, accompanied, of course, all of this by express statements by the Israeli high command, that is precisely what they're doing, or that's precisely what they want to do, uh, that is to drive them out of the Gaza Strip. The scorched earth tactics, where I think now upwards of about 60% of all infrastructure, including habitable buildings, is either destroyed completely or partially destroyed, such that there's nothing for these refugees to return to. All of this um, is unprecedented in the history of the Palestine problem and goes even far beyond that, which took place in 1948, empirically speaking, in terms of hard numbers. Uh, and so we're now at a time that is, in my lifetime, I've never seen, and I've been a scholar and a practitioner on the Christian Palestine my whole life. Um, uh, these are dark, dark times indeed. And the international response has not been adequate I think that's even an understatement. It's It's been pretty embarrassing, actually. Um, unfortunately, the General Assembly uh, resolutions are not binding. So even though 153 countries voted for a ceasefire, it's not a binding resolution. So it's, it's not going to stop Israel from continuing its indiscriminate bombardment of civilians. How else could the UN help in this particular situation? Is there anything else that you see that they should be doing? Right. So the very first thing, you were right to speak of the ceasefire the push, the, the very, very first thing that the UN should uh, uh, have been doing, um, literally from the off two or three days into the events, given the scope and the breadth of the attacks um, uh, that the occupying power was imposing on the people of Gaza uh, from very early on, was, would be to call for a ceasefire. That's the normal course for the United Nations. Of course, the Secretary General did not do that um, as the um, chief executive officer of the organization. It falls to him to speak on behalf of the organization, and he failed to do that. Um, it wasn't until I think about 11 days into the, uh, into the onslaught on Gaza that the Secretary General began calling for humanitarian ceasefires or humanitarian pauses, I think it was, um, so language that wasn't uh, unequivocal, uh, that is to say, by calling it a humanitarian ceasefire or a humanitarian pause, it implies that uh, it is legitimate and accepted uh, that there will be a continuation at some stage after the pause of, of armed force on the civilian population uh, once the pause ends. So that, that was very disappointing. And I think um, almost in his defense, the Secretary General is probably taking his, his cues of reading the temperature from the, the mood in the Security Council, uh, the, the very clear difference of opinion between the United States on the one hand and the other four permanent members. Um, it's come to the point where, as you'd mentioned now, we've finally got a General Assembly resolution uh, 153 member states of 193 member states. Um, with, I think, 10 against and maybe 20 or 22 abstaining. Those are the ones who voted. 
called for a ceasefire, a humanitarian ceasefire, uh, uh, not too long ago. Um, and just today, right now, as we speak, as you and I speak, the Security Council is now debating uh, the passage of a draft resolution, which itself doesn't call for a ceasefire, but only refers to the previous Security Council resolution of, of the 15th uh, of the month, um, a calling for a humanitarian pause. So um, in terms of the United Nations institutional response, it hasn't been as good politically as it should be. Uh, on the humanitarian side, they're going flat out. Uh, UNRWA is the largest presence. I used to work in the Gaza Strip for UNRWA, so I'm well familiar with their operations. Uh, they've got thousands of local staff, local Palestinian staff, who are doing their utmost in impossible conditions. Those staff themselves and their families being attacked from the sky and uh, all from pretty much everywhere else by the occupying power and being driven from their homes. So doing an, an impossible job and with very little uh, supplies, um, very little food, uh, if any, uh, fuel and so on to, to dispense. Um, so they've tried. And according to the UN humanitarian coordinator, Martin Griffiths, um, the resident uh, humanitarian coordinator uh, and his uh, representative, um, Lynn Hastings, it's not a proper UN humanitarian response on the ground in Gaza as a result, something that cannot be called a humanitarian response by virtue of the fact that there is no space for them to do their work. Uh, there's no respect for their in independence, impartiality, uh, neutrality, and their need primarily for access to the resources, food, fuel, to dispense uh, to the needy population, all by action of the occupying power. Um, so um, not, not a good... Uh, situation. What can the UN do? I can tell you what they should do. They should be immediately calling for an, for a ceasefire that's unconditional and depoliticize any calls for a ceasefire. You're seeing from the United States a, a heavy politicization of any call for a ceasefire. They want to blame Hamas and so on. And in response, of course, other states in, in the United Nations are saying, all right, if you're going to politicize it, then we'll do just the same and, and call the Israelis out for their completely disproportionate response, their illegal occupation and the ravaging of the civilian population. So it doesn't look good at the UN, frankly, uh, uh, on, uh, on the 19th of December when you and I are talking. Things may change within days, but it doesn't look good. Yeah, and I highly doubt that the Security Council will actually vote for a ceasefire. I I'm sure that the United States will veto it, but let's see what happens after this interview. Let's see. But UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres did say that the events of October 7th did not take place within a vacuum, that there is a history of occupation which led up to it, which of course doesn't justify the massacre of civilians. And neither does Hamas's atrocities justify what Israel is currently unleashing on the Palestinians in Gaza. So I do want to take a historical view given that your book is actually looking at the history of the UN and the partition of 1947, which um, it put forth in a specific resolution 181. So maybe we could first examine two concepts before we look at the history, that being rule of law versus rule by law. And the way I understand it is that you know rule of law is sort of the body of international norms, customary law, you know, the system that came after World War II, essentially. Um, and rule by law is maybe the way that the UN 
doesn't actually enforce the rule of law. So there's a sort of discrepancy between the two. How would you explain it? Yeah, thanks for thanks for the question. Uh, it goes straight to the book that Pettit just published uh, on the United Nations and the question of Palestine. And in that book, I I, I juxtapose um, the idea of the international rule of law, um, which, as you rightly pointed out, is the notion in the liberal order that law is meant to govern relations between actors on a system, and in this case, the international system. Those actors are primarily states, but they also include non-state actors peoples who have a right to self-determination, and uh, others, even individuals, to the extent that individuals have human rights and so on. And the idea of the rule of law is that international law exists to hold all to account uh, as uh, applicable um, under this rubric of, of law. And the idea there is that there should be a universal application of law, regardless of the position or the station of, of the actor in question. Um, and what I find when I look at the question of Palestine and its management by the United Nations over decades, since 1947 to the very present, is that while the UN holds itself out as being the standard bearer uh, of the international rule of law, what we find is that through the actions of the United Nations on the question of Palestine and repeatedly uh, from 1947 to the present, there seems to be something that is more akin to what I call the rule by law, where law is created by the United Nations or affirmed by the United Nations, but at bottom abused, selectively applied um, in order, quite frankly, to impose an order that is at bottom inequitable when looked at from the vantage point of, in this case, the Palestinian people, and more broadly, the global subaltern or the global uh, underclass, if you like. Um, and what's interesting about the question of Palestine is that it seems to me to embody um, this condition that I call international legal subalternity. Again, uh, the essence of that condition, which is something I've, I've come up with uh, as, as a condition under international law that, that I, I can see before me in, in my work in it, um, is that international law is repeatedly held out to the global underclass, the global subaltern, the global south uh, women, children, minorities, non-self-governing groups, people on the outside of power looking in effectively, that international law is held out to these people as holding a promise for justice, that each time that those groups, and in this case the Palestinian people, go for that promise and try and use international law or international institutions, being the United Nations primarily, to realize that promise, the goalposts always seem to shift and, and paradoxically by the actions of the very same international community that holds this promise out, being the UN. And so we see that uh, from 1947 with the purported partition of Palestine by the General Assembly of the UN. We see it thereafter by the UN's creation, not very long after the partition resolution uh, failed, um, creation of, uh, of uh, a normative and institutional regime that was unique for Palestinian refugees through UNRWA and another UN organization. We see it as well through the failure by the United Nations to manage the, the question of the occupied Palestinian territory from 1967 to the present day for what it is, which is an illegal occupation. Um, and if it is illegal, that gives rise to a certain consequences that the UN's position doesn't uh, accord with today. And then finally, you can very clearly see it in how uh, the Security Council of the United Nations has denied 
the state of Palestine a membership in the United Nations organization um, for various reasons that are that are sort of shaped as legal ones, but in fact are very polit political and politicized uh, when looked at through the prism of the law governing membership of the organization. And so my book tends to, uh, looks at each of these moments and despite these moments taking place over different paradigmatic times, sort of uh, late empire in the 19, late 40s, um, uh, the decolonization period in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, all the way to the present, uh, the unipolar and now the multipolar world that we're now going through. Despite these different, the politics of di these different paradigmatic moments, the condition of, of legal subalternity uh, remains and is embodied by the Palestinian people uh, and the state of Palestine uh, in their engagement with the UN. And would you direct your critique towards the member states, which are part of the UN, or more towards the sort of structure of the UN? I mean, the Permanent Council, for example, is, or sorry, the Security Council is comprised of five permanent members who have veto power. So there's a power imbalance there that's embedded within the UN system itself. Um, so yeah. where would you say you'd sort of direct your critique at the most? That's right. So it's the very uh, perceptive question that you've asked, and it's it's a it's a very useful question. What is the UN effectively? What do you mean when what do we mean when we speak of the United Nations? Is it at, is it an independent organization, or is it merely the sum of its parts being different member states, some of whom have more power than others, both materially and indeed legally? When you look at the P5, the permanent five representatives on the Security Council who have a veto. And my book and in my practice, and this comes through my experience with the United Nations, accepts that it is neither one or the other. It is both at, at one and the same time. So I mentioned earlier the Security, the Secretary General. He is an independent civil servant. At, at, under Article, I believe it is 100 of the UN Charter, he's not to seek ex, uh, uh, um, instruction from any member state, and no member state is uh, is to impose any obligations on him or any of his staff because they are independent. And the UN, of course, we know from the jurisprudence of the International Court of Justice, the reparations case um, from 1948, uh, we know that the UN has its own individual legal personality. At the same time. When you look at the Security Council, just by way of example, you can see that even though the UN holds itself out in, in the UN Charter, uh, that all states, all members are sovereign equals, some, in fact, are more equal than others. As I just mentioned, that is the P5 who have, in law, under the UN Charter, a treaty, have more power than others by virtue of their veto power. So the UN is all of these things at once. And so it's important that when we assess, when I assess, the UN's engagement with the question of Palestine from 1947 to the present, um, that I take into account what in fact is happening and who in fact are the actors. So my book does do that and I do that in my analysis. So if we look at, our, at uh, 1947 and the partition of Palestine, to go back to your initial substantive question, there you have the General Assembly who had the problem of Palestine handed over to it by the British uh, mandate power. Um, and had asked, the British had asked the General Assembly, then numbering 51 states, most of them Western. Um, again, the vast majority of the world was still under colonialism at this time. Um, had asked for a study to be done by the General Assembly uh, uh, for the 
quote-unquote future government of Palestine. And through my examination of the UN record uh, concerning its management of the question of Palestine, the future government of Palestine, it didn't take long to figure out what was going on. Western states were trying to shape a resolution for Palestine that effectively created a Jewish state in a place full of non-Jews. That is to say, the majority of the population were Palestinian, Arabs, Muslims, and Christians, who had for the preceding 30 years um, had to face a sort of a slow trickle of European Zionist Jewish settlement uh, facilitated by the British mandatory power. And that Zionist settlement was aimed at one thing, creating what was then called a Jewish national home under the League of Nations system uh, uh, and even within the UN documents, but that everyone knew was going to be a Jewish state, even though these European Zionist settlers who happened to be Jewish and who wanted to establish this state were a very small number. And by the time the General Assembly is handed this problem, I'd say the population of Palestine was two-thirds Palestinian Arab indigenous uh, people to one-third European Jewish settler. Um, and the General Assembly chose to partition the country uh, through resolution at 181 um, in a manner that was completely violative of principles of self-determination. So what does that look like? What did that look like? Well, under resolution 181, two-thirds of the population, the indigenous population, were given 43% of the country. One-third of the population, the Jewish settler population from Europe, was given 56% um, of the country. And that's not all. On the eve of the partition resolution, and this is all according to UN documents, by the way, on the eve of the partition resolution, the Jewish community in Palestine only owned 5.6% of the country. Um, and yet, under the court, under the terms of the partition resolution, they were being being given fifty six percent of the country. Um, and of course, if it was going to be a Jewish state, one would presume that they would have a preponderance of of Jews living in that state. That the the Jewish portion of this state would be a majority Jewish population. Well, according to the UN record, that was not the case. So even under the UN partition plan population ratio of the purported Jewish state to be established under that plan was one to one. In fact, I looked at the records very carefully. There were about two or 3,000 more Palestinian Arabs in the Jewish state than Jewish uh, residents of Palestine in, in the proposed Jewish state. So from the off, according to the UN partition plan, the Jewish state wouldn't even have a majority Jewish population. And what does all of that mean? Well, it sets up basically the groundwork for a civil war. Now, according to the UN record, um, which I looked at very carefully, the United Nations Special Committee for Palestine, which was mandated to look at this problem and come up with solutions, which they did send to the General Assembly and which the General Assembly used to form the basis of Resolution 181, had information given to it directly in hearings by the Jewish agency, uh, the Jewish uh, uh, Zionist leadership at the time headed by David Ben-Gurion, who ended up becoming the first prime minister of Israel, to the effect that they were armed, that is, their, the Zionist militias existed, and that they were asked expressly what, to Ben-Gurion, he was asked, um, if you get a General Assembly resolution partitioning Palestine, what will you do if the Arabs reject it? He said, we will go to the Arabs, and I'm paraphrasing now, we will go to the Arabs 
And if they reject, we will tell them we have a decision in our favor. That is the General Assembly resolution. And if you fail to accept the decision, then we will use force to impose it on you. So all of this to say that the UN knew that the Zionists had the capabilities to deploy force to impose themselves militarily on the people of Palestine. They also knew that the British would quit Palestine physically, would remove their police powers, would remove their military from Palestine prior to the partition resolution being given effect. And that meant that the Palestinian population would be left undefended because their leadership and their military had been destroyed in the 1930s by the British um, uh, occupying a rather uh, mandate power. All this to say that the Nakba of 1948 was set in, in stone, was, was set up on a plate, was teed up, as we say in golf, um, by the decision of the General Assembly to, to illegally partition Palestine. And again, without the consent of the Palestinian natives running completely contrary to principles of self-determination. Um, I'll give you, by way of example, just to close this, this thought, a little point from the UN record. Um, bear with me. A little point from the UN record. When asked about self-determination, UNSCOP, while it's considering uh, the partition of Palestine, um, in the UNSCOP record, they're very clear. They say expressly, bear with me, According to the well-known international principle of self-determination, which is now universally recognized and forms a keystone of the Charter of the United Nations, the affairs of a country must be conducted in accordance with the wishes of the majority of its inhabitants. In 1947, it is too late to look at the matter from any other angle. Um, and they just carry on. They just carry on uh, and basically say, look, sorry, despite the fact that we know that the partition plan is going to violate principles of self-determination, we are going to go forward with it nonetheless. And the reason why they did that, of course, was because it was a general assembly dominated by Europe and they wanted to fix, quote unquote, what they called the Jewish question in the wake of the Holocaust at the expense of the Palestinians. You're arguing that this particular resolution 181, which was... Um written by the General Assembly was in a, in a way foreclosing the possibility for the Palestinians to avail themselves of their right to self-determination. Right, right. A ab absolutely, because if you were to apply principles of self-determination on the territory at the time, which was required, of course, under international law, and as was done in respect of other Class A mandates, because Palestine was a Class A mandate under the League of Nations Covenant, and other Class A mandates existed, say, in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and so on. And they did have those rules applied to them. If you were to apply self-determination to the Class A mandate, you would have to give um, respect and defer to the will of the majority, wouldn't you? Well, in this case, they knew right from the off, and in their record, they're very clear that if the majority was given its will, if the Palestinian Arab indigenous majority was, had, had its will respected, there would be no Jewish state. And of course, UNSCOP, the United Nations at the time said, we can't countenance this. There must be a Jewish state and we're going to establish one regardless of what the indigenous majority of the population feel. So this is from the off a violation of the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination and yet presented as yet by the UN as an opportunity for them to express their self-determination in the other half of Palestine, the 43% of the partitioned population uh, territory. Of course, all of this was for naught because immediately following the partition resolution's passage, a civil war broke out. 
the first six months of which involved the ethnic cleansing by the Zionist militia um, of 300,000 Palestinian indigenous Arabs from what was then earmarked for the Jewish state. And then when Israel declared its uh, independence, so to speak, declared its statehood on the 14th of May, 1948, and other states entered Palestine to save Palestine, were given uh, in Western parlance to believe that they invaded Israel. In fact, they didn't. There was a collective uh, responsibility to self to defend Palestine under the Arab League, and they entered. Uh, and it was only after they entered in, in nineteen in nineteen forty eight May fifteen that that began an interstate phase of the war. And for the next twelve months or so, the nineteen forty eight war continued into 1949 and resulted in another 450,000 Palestinians, uh, civilians um, expelled uh, with a total of about 750 to 800,000 expelled as a result of the 1948 Nakba. And, you know, fast forward to today and you see that happening on the ground right now in Gaza. I do have a question about the right to self-determination because the right to self-determination is something which came out in the early part of the 1900s. It's not a product of the post-World War II institutional framework. It's something which came much, much earlier. And I believe the Soviet Union also contributed to the development of the right to self-determination. So would you say that the post-World War II order was maybe in a way at odds with that particular right, that they maybe didn't even within the context of decolonization, didn't really want to respect the right to self-determination? Well, self-determination is an interesting concept in international law. It goes through different phases uh, during its progressive evolution. So when it first emerged through Woodrow Wilson's uh, positions uh, following World War One, it was a political postulate. You know, he urged that there should be no uh, continuation of, of empire, that people's rights in the colonies needed to be respected that they should be able to self-determine. And um, it wasn't until, I guess, 1945 with the advent of the UN Charter that the idea of self-determination as such was codified into a treaty, making it international law. But there are scholars who argue that in 1945, despite being included in the UN treat in the UN Charter, self-determination was as yet an international legal principle. Some scholars argue that in 1945, despite being included in the UN Charter, it was merely a political postulate. This does not ring true because it otherwise wouldn't have been put in, into an international treaty being the UN Charter. Be that as it may, it's clear when it comes to Palestine that in terms of state practice, which is part of the customs of states and how international law forms, that in terms of state practice in the year 1947, the right of self-determination for peoples subjected to class A mandates of the League of Nations, and here I'm required to go back to that for your viewers, class A mandates under the League of Nations had their independence provisionally recognized under Article 22 of the League of Nations Covenant. And because of that, it was very clear based on those positions established in the UN Charter and the League of Nations Covenant and the state practice for class A mandates, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and others, that clearly the people of Palestine enjoyed a right to self-determination. And then moving forward into the 1960s when self-determination then picks up through decolonization, that is, um, 
you know, the emergence of the so-called new states from Asia, Africa, Latin America, and so on to coming out, out of the yoke of European colonialism, that's where the real practice on self-determination of the colonies sort of emerges, such that now it is very clear that people who are subjected to colonialism and forms of foreign domination, alien domination, racial regimes, including foreign occupation, have a right to self-determination. And that's also another basis for the Palestinian people's right to self-determination. Although now in the truncated territory of the occupied Palestinian territory, being the West Bay, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. I wanted to ask you about the role of the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, which is the UN court. It basically adjudicates on disputes brought to it by sovereign states, as well as issues legal advisory opinions. But most states would argue that it doesn't really occupy a role above sovereign states. So there isn't really an entity which can enforce the application of UN principles or international law. And this is also even more complicated by the fact that the International Criminal Court, which is a completely different court altogether, the ICC, doesn't have jurisdiction over countries such as Israel or the United States, which are continuously in violation of principles enshrined in the Rome Statute, which is uh, the document which governs the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. So there's no real entity which can enforce or ensure that there are repercussions for the violations of these international norms which are perpetrated by the U.S. and Israel. So how would you assess the role of the ICJ as well as its 2004 legal advisory opinion on the legal consequences of the construction of a wall in the occupied Palestinian territories? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a good question. Uh, in fact, I deal with this in chapter five of my book. Um, look, the, the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, is the principal judicial organ of the United Nations. The UN has six principal organs. Uh, the ICJ is the principal judicial organ. Um, and as such, all member states of the United Nations have access to the court if they so consent. But what's interesting is that uh, the court also operates uh, a jurisdiction or has a jurisdiction to provide uh, legal opinions on legal questions that are put before it. We call these advisory opinions. And um, the General Assembly has put questions to the court uh, and sought advisory opinions on any number of things over the course of the life of the United Nations. Um, and in 2004, it put a question to the court on the, asking the court of what the legal consequences were of the construction by Israel of a wall in the occupied Palestinian territory. Um, that wall is, still exists. It is still, to a certain extent, being constructed, but the vast majority of it is, is complete. All of it, or the vast majority of it, in the occupied Palestinian territory, severing Palestinians from one another. Um, closing off space, making it impossible for farm farmers, Palestinian farmers, to farm their lands on the other side of the wall, or for people to get to their family and friends, or indeed uh, key uh, services like hospitals and other such jobs on the other side of the wall, and so on. Um, and the court in 2004 declared that the wall was unlawful uh, for a number of reasons. First and foremost, because it violates the Palestinian people's right to self-determination. The court affirmed that the Palestinian people are people under international law, juridically, that as a result, they have a right to self-determination, that the occupied Palestinian territory, being the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip, are occupied territory, and effectively the, the um, 
territorial unit within which to occupy rather the Palestinian people have a right to exercise self-determination. And because they're occupied, these territories, Israel as occupying power cannot, as a matter of law, be sovereign in them. Occupation is meant to be temporary, for example. And so these were very useful pronouncements made by the court. But one thing that the court didn't do, nor was it asked to do, was determine the legality of Israel's occupation as such. Um, and this is uh, one of the issues, this is the issue that I take up in chapter five of my book, and which incidentally is now before the court, uh, the International Court of Justice, uh, which I'm happy to talk about in a moment. But the essence of it is this. In international law, there's a, there's a difference between the law that governs the right to use force initially. This is what we call the use ad bellum. And this is governed by Article 2, Subsection 4 of the UN Charter and other exam, uh, uh, exceptions to the, to the general prohibition that exists in Article 2, Subsection 4 of the Charter. General prohibition on the use of force in international relations. There are two exceptions to this, possibly three. And the law governing how force is used. So the right to use force, the use ad bellum, and law governing how force is used, the use in bello or international humanitarian law. So the law that governs mm, the distinction between civilians and combatants or proportionality of the use of force when force is used, the necessity principles and so on, that you can't target a civilian or a civilian object and so on. And when you do, the use of force you use must be proportionate. Now, it's important to keep these two bodies of law in mind because the UN has documented chapter and verse, and you see this come through in the 2004 advisory opinion on the wall, violations by the occupying power, Israel, of the use in Bello, the IHL, the International Humanitarian Law. Settlements are a war crime. You can't deport the population, the civilian population. You can't use torture or violate their human rights and so on. So... There's a documentation of these um, uh, of how force is to be used, but there's no assessment done by the court of the right of Israel to a use force to maintain its presence in the occupied territory, and b ultimately the legality of their presence in the occupied territory. And that is exactly the question that is now being put before the court um, in a case that is, is pending before the court by resolution seventy seven forward slash two four seven of 30 December 2022, the General Assembly following through on a suggestion that I made uh, and a number of others have made, but that I make in my book in chapter five, um, has asked the court, what are the legal consequences effectively of, of Israel's continued annexation, settlement, and imposition of racial discrimination and violation of the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination in the occupied Palestinian territory? And in view of all of those things, what is the what are the legal consequences of all of those things for the for the legal status of Israel's presence in the territory? And it's basically inviting the court to determine that Israel's presence in the territory is unlawful. Some of the things that your as listeners should be aware of is that occupations are meant to be temporary. An occupation does not provide the occupying power with sovereignty. It can never do that. Um, so Russia is in occupation of Ukraine. It purports to have annexed portions of Ukraine and the international community has rightfully expressed dismay with that and rejected that. Russia as an occupying power cannot annex occupied territory nor can it claim sovereignty in occupied Ukraine. The exact principles apply to occupied Palestine. And yet 
this occupation has lasted, Israel's occupation of the OPT, Occupied Palestinian Territory, has lasted 56 years. And under color of some purported right by the occupying power, every single government since 1967 to claim sovereignty in that territory. The Israeli occupying power has legislated this, including in its quasi-constitutional laws, its basic laws, that only Jews have self-determination rights in the occupied Palestinian territory. Uh, at its, it's followed through with actions to colonize that territory. Today, there are 750,000 Israeli settlers living illegally in the occupied Palestinian territory. Even in the Gaza Strip, in, in the, you know, in the wake of all of this indiscriminate bombardment and ethnic cleansing that is taking place, you know, there are large segments of the Israeli government, including members of cabinet, that are arguing, arguing that once the war uh, is, is over, so to speak, that the Israeli settlers be, or the government of Israel be allowed to resettle the Gaza Strip. So, um, you know, if, if that's what occupation is, temporary and occupying power is not sovereign, and yet Israel claims sovereignty in this territory, the, the court is, is now being asked to determine the, the legality of, of the occupation. And finally, if it does determine that the occupation is illegal, and the consequences of that in international law are very clear. Under the law of state responsibility, a state engaged in internationally wrongful conduct has three basic obligations. First, to end the conduct forthwith. So you must end the occupation forthwith and unconditionally. Second, make appropriate uh, assurances of a non-repetition. And third, pay appropriate rep uh, reparations for any damage thereby. And third, states also have obligations because this violation, the occupation, triggers violations of what we call peremptory norms the right to self-determination, the inviolability of territorial integrity of the state, and so on. Third states are under obligation not to aid or assist the maintenance of these illegal acts being the occupation, nor to recognize them as lawful. And these consequences would be great because that would then trigger a change in the UN discourse on how to end the occupation. Now these Palestinians are told you must negotiate the end of the occupation with your jailer, with the occupying power who operates in bad faith, and according to the UN documentation, which we've um, uh, produced over many decades, well, however do you negotiate the end of your bondage with your jailer? It's impossible. And clearly that is not required by the law of state responsibility if the, occupy, if you, if the occupation is declared to be unlawful. So fingers crossed that will take place next year before the International Court of Justice. But parallel to this inquiry that was you know, presented by the General Assembly to the ICJ for them to determine whether the occupation is unlawful or not. At, parallel to this, we could also have, um, or I should say at the same time, we could also have an inquiry before the International Criminal Court. And that would also have, I would assume, different consequences, different legal consequences. But Israel has not signed up to the jurisdiction of the ICC. That, that's right. So it's a different court. Um, this court, the ICC, is a, is a court that concerns itself with individual criminal responsibility, which is different than what the ICJ would concern itself with, which is state responsibility. Um, so yes, there are parallel proceedings that have been ongoing at the, the uh, International Criminal Court. Uh, Palestine acceded to the uh, Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court in 2014. And there has been an open investigation since 2021 on the situation in Palestine, as it is called. 
Um, and under the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, the court has jurisdiction over what we call the core crimes in international criminal law, being genocide, aggression, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. And so it is open and within the realm of the possible that at least three of those core crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes, can be looked at by the office of the prosecutor as he engages in his investigation in respect of the situation in Palestine. And notwithstanding the fact that Israel is not a party to the Rome Statute. And the reason for that is that Palestine is a party. And because Palestine is a party to the Rome Statute, the territory on which the uh, Rome, the uh, International Criminal Court has jurisdiction uh, in the situation in Palestine is the territory of the occupied Palestinian territory. Uh, that is the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. This was confirmed by the pre-trial chamber about a year and a half ago of the ICC. Um, aggression would not be able to be pursued because there, in the, the fine print of the Rome Statute makes it impossible for aggression to uh, be pursued if the alleged aggressor state is itself not a signatory of the Rome Statute. And in this case, the, the alleged aggressor state is Israel and it is not a signatory. So that's one of the downsides. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, the issue of genocide was placed before the office of the prosecutor by a group of states from the global south led by South Africa. Um, and crimes against humanity and war crimes are already in front of the office of the prosecutor. So it's only a matter of time before the office of the prosecutor issues arrest warrants and indictments. There are some concerns, however, based on his public statements in recent days that there might be a politicization on his part of who is pursued before the court. He's been very vociferous, for instance, in um, uh, speaking about Hamas war crimes on October the 7th. Indeed, those actions, to the extent that they're investigated by his office and demonstrate the reasonable grounds to pursue them criminally, should be pursued criminally. But he hasn't been as vociferous in respect of, say, Israel's settlement regime. He's spoken of, say, settler violence, but he's not spoken of the openly of the very clear legal uh, responsibility that attaches to the leadership of the state of Israel individually, criminally, for the establishment of settlements and over many decades. Uh, and that's, that's the elephant in the room um, because the Israelis have no defense for that. They're actually openly and historically have very openly and publicly said that they have every intention on settling the territory. They don't believe it's illegal and they're going to persist. Well, that's... Um, like the case made, as it were, and there's no reason why the 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 office of the prosecutor uh, should not have, and years ago, issued indictments against the uh, the uh, Israeli leadership for violating uh, that portion of the Rome Statute, which prohibits settlement by an occupying power, and yet he hasn't. So there's some concern there. I do have a final question because we have seen many countries in the global south express their disappointment or frustration with the UN system and with the so-called rules-based uh, international order, particularly with regards to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, Western countries were vociferously condemning Russia's invasion, but now with Israel's occupation of, of um, Palestinian territories and, and its bombardment of Gaza, those same countries haven't been speaking out. If anything, countries like the U.S. have been enabling this bombardment. And even though Joe Biden did say that Israel is actually indiscriminately bombing 
the Palestinian territories, it, it does sound like, you know, he hasn't set any red lines and he's actually giving the green light for it. And, you know, the U.S. is funding Israel to to enact these atrocities. So my question would be, if you look at this body of international norms and you look at the history of it, a lot of, you know, third world international scholars would say that this specific legal system emerged out of a very specific colonial context, one in which was propped up by Western capitalism and the desire to exploit other countries and to take their resources in order to support the development of Europeanness in a way or, or, or European countries. Um, so if you're an optimist and you really believe in these specific values that are enshrined in the UN Charter and in other international norms and in customary law, how do you reconcile that with the fact that this international system actually came out of a system of oppression, of you know discrimination and exploitation of colonized people? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's something that any critical international lawyer deals with, must necessarily deal with. That is the historical evolution of the international legal order out of Europe and out of the clash of European empire with the non-European world that that empire aimed to colonize and exploit and so on, because that's where in, that's the pedigree of international law, modern international law is about that clash and the rules that needed to be produced by Europe to legitimate what it was doing to the non-European world. Um, this is a this is a critique of international law that is a reasonable one. It's one that I engage with in my book and in my other scholarship, and that others do in the what we call the third world approaches to international law school of thought. Uh, but there's also a stream of thought within this school of thought that recognizes the universal, the potential universal character and quality and importance of normative framework that modern international law offers. And the idea there is that you recognize it, but now you have to actually put it put it to work. And so it's important for us to call out um, the need to abide by the rule of law, truly, the universal application of these norms without fear or fear. Um, Otherwise, you just end up with more of the same colonial imperial abuse of the law, what I call rule by law. One good example is you see this happen now when you juxtapose, say, the Western response to Russia's uh, occupation and purported annexation of Ukraine with the Western response to Israel's occupation of Palestine, or indeed Morocco's occupation of Western Sahara or uh, Israel's occupation of, of occupied Syria, the Syrian Golan Heights, you have the same principles of law. So occupation, its temporariness, the inadmissibility of acquisition of territory through threat or use of force, the inadmissibility that an occupied territory can be annexed by the occupying power, the inadmissibility of uh, the imposition by an occupying power of its own civilian settlers in the territory it occupies, the invisibility effectively of colonizing an occupied territory. These same principles apply in Ukraine as they do in occupied Palestine, Western Sahara, and the Golan Heights, occupied Syrian Golan Heights. And yet, the positions of the great powers are diametrically opposite on these conflicts. So the West wants everybody, and rightfully so, led by the United States, 
to support sanctions against Russia for its illegal annexation and occupation of Ukraine. And it scratches its head and wonders why the Global South doesn't follow suit, doesn't support them in that call. And the reason why the Global South does not do that is precisely now being displayed for all of us in real time on the camera in respect of what the occupying power in Israel is doing in, rather, the Israeli occupying power is doing in occupied Palestine in Gaza, where the West is led by the United States, not willing to call for a ceasefire, not willing to call out Israel's illegal occupation, or the fact that it doesn't enjoy a right of self-defense to impose an illegal regime on another country through, in a, among other things, the imposition of racial discrimination or apartheid. So it's the unequal application of these principles that requires even the most skeptical of twail international lawyers or those who practice in the world like I do and who dabble in twail from time to time that calls upon us to sort of call these double standards out. Um, we mustn't, in my respectful view, throw our hands up and say, oh, well, law does not matter because that's a nihilistic thing to do. And then what would be left? What would we be left with? No. Law does matter. We just need to apply it, I think, universally and without favor um, it, with an idea of the humanism that was meant, or at least should be meant, to be read into it in 2023, um, some 75 years uh, since the partition of Palestine and some 70, 77 years since, uh, since the creation of the United Nations. Well, Dr. Imseis, thank you so much for joining us and for making the case for the universal applicability of these international norms and laws. It was really great to get your insights on what's going on right now in Gaza and Israel's indiscriminate illegal bombardment of Palestinians. My pleasure to be with you, Talia. I wish you well with the, with the podcast and I wish all your viewers well. And thank you for watching theanalysis.news. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by going to our website, theanalysis.news, and making a small contribution if you're able to do so. Thank you, and see you next time.